This is an MVP podcast, My Village Productions. Welcome to Unsolved America, a show where we explore unsolved mysteries throughout the United States. I'm your host, Tiffany. And I'm your host, Andy, and each week we will throw a dart at the map and wherever it lands is the location of our mystery. This mystery has been split into two parts. Please enjoy and tune in next week for part two. This week, I landed on West Virginia. West Virginia is our last state. It is. So this story is actually about the Sauter family. Ooh, a whole family. A whole family. Specifically, the disappearance of, I'll say the majority of their children. I mean, what? How, How? five total how does, out of nine how does five children just disappear poof gone in mysterious circumstances so this case is really weird okay so it starts on christmas eve mm-hmm. december 24th 1945 this is the date that a fire came through well not came through a fire started and destroyed the Sauter family home Okay. I made it sound like it was like a wildfire. It wasn't a wildfire. <laughs> there was the, just a fire that happened in the household. Yes. <laughs> and they lived in Fayetteville, West Virginia. Okay. So at the time of the fire, the occupants of the home were George Sauter, his wife Jenny, and then nine of their ten children. Okay. So during the fire, George, Jenny, and four of the nine children escaped. The bodies of the remaining five children were never found. I mean, how, do, how does that happen? Right. So the surviving Sauter family, they have believed ever since this happened Mm -hmm. that the five missing children actually survived the fire. And there may have been something ominous behind their disappearance. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Don't want to give too much away. Okay. So after the fire, the Sauters never really rebuilt their house. Instead, they converted the site into a memorial garden to their lost children. And in the 1950s, they came to realize that they had doubts about the investigation and about like that their children were just dead. Yeah. The family ended up putting a billboard at the site of the house along Route 16 with pictures of the five children. And it offered a reward for information that could bring closure to the case. And that billboard remained standing until 1989, which is shortly after Jenny Sauter, the mom, passed away. I mean, first of all, 10 children. Yeah. That's a lot. Girl. They were Italian, so I can assume that they were probably Catholic. So once you put it in that perspective, it makes sense. Oh, yeah. I mean. And also, 1945, people liked big families back then. Well, and there, I mean, there's probably not. A lot to do in Fayetteville, West Virginia. And like the the protection we have now. <laughs> you right. In some states. Bleep, bleep. So <laughs> in support of their belief that the children survived, the Sodders pointed to a number of unusual circumstances that uh, occurred either before or during the fire. I mean, what kind of unusual? So... George actually disputed the Fayetteville Fire Department's finding that the blaze was considered electrical in origin. Mm-hmm. So they believe that it was an electrical fire that started the blaze. But he says that's false because he had recently had the entire house rewired and inspected by professional electricians. Is George the dad? Yes. Okay. So George and his wife actually uh, suspect arson, which have led to theories that the children had been taken Possibly by the Sicilian Mafia. Okay. Which is which was kind of mentioned because as like a retaliation against George, 
because he was very outspoken of the government of his native country, Italy. I mean, you're really... Girl, the mafia's everywhere, though. I understand that, and facts, yes. But just because someone's speaking out against, like, crime and mafia, I'm going to go burn their house down and take their five children. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows, really? Yeah, we really don't. No, nobody does. This yeah. is unsolved. <laughs> I would hope so. As the premise of I mean, of sadly, show. it really is sad, but we wouldn't be talking about it on the show if it was solved. So to give you some background information on Papa Sauter. Georgie. Georgie. Close. So he was actually born with the name Giorgio Sodu in Tula, Sardinia, Italy in 1895. Oh, gosh. He immigrated to the United States when he was just 13 years old. Mm-hmm. And he came to America with his uh, older brother, who actually decided to return back home as soon as both of the boys had cleared customs at Ellis Island. Okay. I want to know what happened there. <laughs> like, <laughs> you just made this, I imagine, a very long journey. Right. On a boat to America to start a new life did you like get off ellis island and you're like nah this isn't for me sis i'm leaving <laughs> I that's mean, wild maybe he went back to go get more of his family or something maybe he got homesick during the voyage i don't know it was just interesting that like you would put all that time and all that effort to get here and then decide to just go back for the rest of his life um george as he came to be known throughout his life um he a lot of immigrants did get rid of their ethnic names yeah. and change their names to be to sound more, quote unquote, American. Yeah, which is normal because there was a lot of racism and it didn't matter if you weren't American, especially back then. Mm-hmm. You were treated as like second class citizens. Yeah, they really didn't like the Irish. Don't know why it was wild. Historians hit me up. <laughs> I want to know why. I'll do research. You don't have to talk to me. Uh, <laughs> so so George never really liked to talk about why he left Italy. Okay. that's That was pretty common throughout his entire life. People would ask him and he kind of just like skirt the conversation, like not really liking to open up about it. So with his outspoken criticism of the government, I imagine that probably had something to do with it. But who knows? We won't. <laughs> so Sauter... <laughs> I'm very cynical today, and I apologize. Uh, (laughs) So Sauter eventually found work on the railroads in uh, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. He, um, his job was to carry water and other supplies to the workers. At 13? And just said eventually. Oh, okay. So he was young. Yeah. And then after a few years, he took more permanent work as a driver in uh, Smithers, West Virginia. Okay. So he definitely has ties to West Virginia. I think he's kind of gravitated towards that area his entire life. I mean, yeah, it's, it was probably cheaper than New York. and True. Absolutely. Anything's cheaper than New York, even back then. So he then started his own trucking company, which they would initially just haul fill dirt to construction sites. Which is actually really profitable. It is. It's very profitable. Um, And then they would move on to um, transporting coal uh, that was mined in the region. So. Okay. Made made a name for himself in the industry. He's done a lot of things. He's gotten his hands dirty in a lot of situations. Mm -hmm. So then Jenny Cipriani, a storekeeper's daughter in Smithers, who had also immigrated from Italy in her childhood, would later become George's wife. 
So that's the background origin on the parents. Full Italian. Absolutely. That's fun. So the Sodders settled outside nearby uh, Fayetteville, which had a very large population of Italian immigrants at the time. Okay. Uh, They moved into a two-story timber frame house that was two miles north of town. And in 1923, they had the first of their 10 children. Man. Uh, George's business was very prosperous. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually ended up becoming one of the most respected, like, societal families in the area. Like, middle class families in the area. Yeah, because he was helping out the town to grow, I feel like, with the mm-hmm. coal and then also the dirt because you need the dirt to build right and i feel like that in especially in that time like there was no no real competition yeah like once you started doing it you kind of were just like the guy that everybody called to do Mm -hmm. it you know Mm -hmm. loyalty mafia (laughs) we're getting dominic toretto in this beat it's all about the family you know (laughs) gotta be even in the early 1900s (laughs) so George did have really strong opinions about a lot of things (laughs) in society, and he really was not shy about expressing them. And he would sometimes alienate people through his opinions. Yeah, so that's not great. Very strong, outspoken individual. Mm -hmm. In particular, his like very adamant opposition to the Italian dictator Benito uh Mussolini led him to some very strong arguments with other members of the immigrant community. I can see that. Yeah. Oh. Absolutely, cuz there are people that like yeah, they immigrated here, but it's like they still are very loyal to their home country. Yeah. Which understandable. So I can see how he would definitely alienate people <laughs> if he was out here just talking smack about Mussolini and about his home country and this that and the other. Well, yeah, and people who are proud of their country are going to be upset with that mm-hmm. at that time, too. Absolutely. So in October of 1945, a visiting life insurance salesman approached George at mm-hmm. his house. Mm-hmm. And after kind of getting in an argument with George, he gave George a warning. A warning? What do you mean a warning? So the salesman was quoted to say that George's house would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. And he attributed all of this to the quote-unquote dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. I mean, how did the salesman... Mafia, bro. <laughs> he was sent there. Maybe. This was a hit. Oh, well, I mean, and that sounds pretty ominous, knowing what comes after that, too. Well, especially because this is October of 1945, so then just a few months later, his house actually goes up in smoke, like... And five children go missing. Right. Yeah. A little suspicious. <laughs> Never said that before in my life. What a time to say it <laughs> on a microphone. That's cool. Another visitor to his house who was seeking work on the grounds mm-hmm. warned George that a pair of fuse boxes in the back of his house would eventually cause a fire. So George was really <laughs> puzzled by this observation that this gentleman had made because he had just had the house rewired when an electric stove was installed. And the local electric company had said afterwards that his house was safe and met standards. Yeah, that's really Boom. weird. Right. Girl, it gets weirder. In the weeks before Christmas that same year, 1945, George's older sons noticed a strange car parked along the main highway through town. Its occupants were watching the younger Sodder children as they returned from school. Creepy. So 
all this was going on. Tis the season to be jolly. <laughs> it's Christmas. Mm-hmm. The eve of Christmas in 1945. <laughs> Marion, the oldest daughter, had been working at a dime store in downtown Fayetteville. And she actually surprised three of her younger sisters with new toys she had bought for them as gifts. Oh, that's nice. The younger children were so excited that they asked their mother if they could stay up past what would have been their usual bedtime Uh so that they could play with their new toys. At 10 p.m., Jenny told them they could stay up a little later as long as the two oldest boys were still awake, which 14-year-old Maurice and his 9-year-old brother, Louis, Louis or Louis? Either Either way. Remembered to put the cows in and feed the chickens before going to bed themselves. George and the two oldest boys, John and George Jr., had spent the day working with their father and they were already asleep. Uh-huh. So it was really up to Maurice and Lewis to make sure they went to bed. After reminding the children of those remaining chores, um, she took Sylvia, Jenny took Sylvia, who was two years old, upstairs with her and they went to bed together. Now, all right, now the telephone rang. At 12.30 a.m. That's really late for... That's late, period. I don't know <laughs> I don't know what you were going to say, but I'm like, you're calling me at 12.30 a.m. Somebody, sh- somebody should be in harm's way. I don't know what's happening. There should be news of some sort because I'm asleep. Mm. Nah. No, usually not. I'm winding down. I'm laying in bed thinking <laughs> about going to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you don't call people past 11 usually. Right. Weird. So... Jenny woke up to the sound of the telephone ringing and went downstairs to answer it. The voice on the other end was a woman who she did not recognize. Mm-hmm. The lady asked to speak with somebody and she was not familiar with this person. Like they didn't live there. So after she told her that person's not here, you got the wrong number. She was met with the sound of laughter and clinking glasses in the background. That's weird. She then told the woman again, you have the wrong number. She hung up and returned to bed. As she did, she noticed that the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn. Two things that children normally attend attended to when they stayed up later than their parents. Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch. So Jenny assumed the other children who had stayed up later had gone back to the attic where they slept. She closed the curtains herself, turned out all the lights and then returned to bed. About 30 minutes later at 1 Mm a.m., Jenny was again awakened by the sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a loud bang, then a rolling noise. After hearing nothing further, she decided, I'm just going back to sleep. Right. After another half hour, she woke up again to the smell of smoke. Oh, man. When she got up again, she found that the room George used for his office was on fire around the telephone line and fuse box. Jenny woke him and he in turn woke his older sons, both parents and four of their children, Marion, John, George and Sylvia. They all escaped the house. They frantically yelled to the children upstairs, but heard no response. They would not go up there as the stairway itself was already aflame. Mm-hmm. John said in his police interview after the fire that he went up to the attic to alert his siblings sleeping there, though he later changed his story to say that the only thing he did was call up there and did not actually see them. And he was like 17, right? Mm-hmm. George Jr. Was, uh, yeah. 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 I mean, that's pretty two different stories. Right. So efforts to find the children were a little complicated. The phone didn't work. Mm-hmm. So Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the Fayetteville Fire Department. 
A driver on the nearby road had also seen the flames and called from a nearby tavern. Okay. They were unsuccessful because they could not reach the operator because the phone at the tavern ended up being broken. It's like a perfect storm. Right. So either the neighbor or the passing motorist was successful in reaching the fire department from another phone in the center of town. George, who was barefoot, climbed the house house's outside wall and broke open an attic window cutting his arm in the process. He and his sons intended to use a ladder to rescue the other children, but it was not in its usual spot resting against the house, and he could not. it could not be found anywhere nearby. Okay. A water barrel that could have been used to extinguish the fire was frozen solid. December. Understandable. Yeah. George then tried to pull both of the trucks he used in his business up to the house, and he used them to climb up to the attic window, but neither of them would start despite having worked perfectly during the previous day. That's see this. It's just a really weird story. And usually we don't like to talk about like the ones that are really popular. We like to try to find ones that are a little unknown. This story, I just was reading it and I was like, this is like the perfect shit storm. Right. Either it's the perfect shit storm or everything was very meticulously planned and somebody thought of everything. Which usually people don't. Unless you're the mafia, bro. And there's like 17, 17 of you, 17, 17 of you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so obviously frustrated, the Sauter family had no choice but to watch the house burn down and collapse over the next 45 minutes. With no help. Yeah, they didn't have any help because nobody was able to get a hold of the fire department. Right. So it was at that time that they they all kind of assumed the remaining children in the attic at, at this point were deceased. Mm-hmm. The fire department was low on manpower um, due to the war at the time. Yeah. So, and they kind of relied on like a telephone tree system. Oh, yeah. A phone tree system. Uh-huh. They would get the call and then they would call the next person and they would call the next person and they would all come uh-huh. eventually. Very inefficient. At yep. least for, at least for this. Right. In an emergency, that's like terrible. <laughs> so the individual firefighters didn't respond until later that morning. That's a very long time. I know. Chief Morris actually said the very next day that the already slow response was further hampered by his inability to drive the fire truck, requiring that he wait until someone who could drive was available. Now, I'm wondering, like, was he drunk from the festivities? <laughs> I mean, maybe, but... Or maybe tra- he just didn't know how to drive yeah, it. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, because fire trucks are, I mean, now... You probably have to be certified on how to drive, drive and what to do. and. But also, how are you going to be the chief and not know how to drive the fire truck? I mean, it's like a CEO. Seems like a prerequisite. Not knowing how to, like. Just seems like a prerequisite. I don't no, know. No, but you tell other people to do it. True. Yeah, that's true. How'd you become chief? I don't know. He always had somebody else driving. Well, I mean, he could have, if he was older, like, drove a truck that was, like, 20 years older and knew how to drive that one. And Ooh, then that's true. When they were a lot smaller. Yeah. I imagine in the 45s, they were probably smaller, too. I don't know. Yeah, but they could have had different things. That's true. So one of the firefighters actually was Jenny's brother. Mm-hmm. And he he was one of the first ones to show up to the scene. And so by about 10 a.m. the next day, Christmas Day... Morris told the Sodders that they had not found any bones, which is something that would have been expected if the other children had been in the house when it burned. Yeah. Because burn b- burns. <laughs> bones don't burn. <laughs> no. You have to, like, grind that stuff down. Well, no, they do burn. Bones burn. 
but like not to like ashes. How do you cremate somebody? I don't know. By fire. Well, I get oh, okay. <laughs> Join us next week for part two of the Sodder Children Disappearance. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unsolved America. Head on over to Facebook and Instagram and follow us at Unsolved America MVP. And be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform. If you need to contact us, please email unsolvedamericamvp at gmail.com, and we'll talk to you next week. This has been an MVP podcast, My Village Productions. 